Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is James Kirby, PhD. He is a lecturer and a clinical psychologist at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. He has also been one of my fellows at the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, and in fact, we have published a number of papers together. He's with me today because he's just had a book released called Choose Compassion, Why It Matters and How It Works. In our conversation today, James debunks the myth that compassion is simply a feeling and shows us how it is a motivational force that can shape our behavior impact our relationships with others, and change the world. Thank you for being with me today. James, thank you for being with me today. I know you're down in uh, Brisbane, Australia. And just to let the audience know, you and I have been friends for a long time. In fact, uh, you spent several months with me at Stanford at Seacare. And we did some uh, interesting projects together uh, and have written a couple of papers. But I want to talk about several things. The most important one, I think, at the moment is that you have written a book and it's going to launch soon. And I thought uh, maybe we can just talk about that. Maybe we can share with the audience the title and then I can uh, start quizzing you and putting you in a <laughs> corner uh, and you can uh, tell us more about it. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Dr. Doty. It's a pleasure to be uh, on your podcast, which I love. Uh, and yeah, we've gone, our history, what spans how long now? Like seven years, maybe? Feels like. You said you were, since you were five. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's just gone by like that. Um, and thank you for having me at Seacare. That was just the best experience. We, you know, not only did I learn so much, but, uh, you know, you made me feel at home there in uh, in America. And uh, I remember us doing some podcasts in the early morning, stopping in a, at donut shops on the way to the recordings. <laughs> it was fantastic. That's true. <laughs> Actually, uh, uh, maybe we should share that with the audience. You and I did a podcast based on the alphabet of the heart, and uh, it was great. You were sort of the interviewer of me, or maybe we were just doing it together. But uh, a lot of people enjoyed that. And in fact, that is on SoundCloud, if anyone is interested in that. And it's also on the Seek uh, Care website. Oh, that was great. Uh, going through the alphabet of the heart with you, and we would spend each uh, podcast uh, you know, unpacking uh, one of those core letters in, in that alphabet and uh, discussing why you included it as part of that white coat talk, wasn't it? it that's, that's, that was the origins. Uh, it was what? Uh, you, you gave it as part of a white coat talk, like a, in a graduation ceremony or something like that? Uh, yeah. So I went to Tulane Medical School, which is New Orleans. And uh, for those of you who may not have read my book, and I'm not trying to plug my book instead of your <laughs> book, but uh, uh, there's a book I wrote called Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart. But that ended up being a New York Times bestseller, which I'm sure yours will be as well. But uh, but as part of that, the way I ended it was I was asked, and I was very honored, to give the White Coat Ceremony lecture. And uh, that's associated 
with uh, students uh, right before they enter medical school and they receive their white coat and they take the oath of Hippocrates or Mamedes or uh, some other type of oath. And it's really the start of their professional careers. And so they always try to have an inspirational speaker. And I tried to, or I wanted to share with the students in a manner in which they could remember it, sort of things that have impacted my life and have contributed to who I am today. Then after a long discussion, that ended up being the alphabet of the heart. And we ended up uh, using that as the basis of a podcast that you and I did. So I'm not going to tell them what the alphabet of the heart is to our listeners. So they have to go buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) And and listen to the podcast. Um, Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. No, but it it was a fantastic... uh, kind of introduction into the the work that you uh, were doing at Sea Care and, and letting me unpack uh, each of those letters as a podcast episode really laid a lot of that foundational knowledge for me in shifting my, my research career. So prior to working with you at Sea Care, I was spending a lot of time in parenting, uh, examining parenting interventions to help uh, parents and children. So I'm a, a clinical psychologist uh, but then became fascinated uh, with compassion. In fact, you came out to the University of Queensland, uh, gave a keynote at our UQ Compassion Symposium. I got caught up in the Doty fanfare, um, really <laughs> <laughs> enjoyed your, your talk immensely and um, have been following up Compassion ever since, uh, which has kind of culminated in uh, this book that comes out November 1st, uh, Choose Compassion. And why it matters, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the byline? Um why it matters and how it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Complicated. You're, 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 you're like me with these long book titles. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, no, that's great. So I, actually, I read the PDF for the book. And in fact, if I recall, I gave some very deep, profound quote. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much. Maybe you can just start and tell us why should someone choose compassion? It's a great question. And uh, I've been wrestling with different responses on how to persuade someone to, to choose compassion. And I never land on something like really profound. I don't know what, what you say, because I suspect you get asked that quite a lot too, you know, why should we care about compassion? And I think a lot of the time the answer will depend on the person asking it. Uh, often they'll have their own kind of thoughts or assumptions about what compassion is. I'll sometimes get some of my friends who seemingly pretty tough and they'll be like you know curbs why should i give a crap about compassion (laughs) you know shouldn't people work it out themselves kind of thing so they're already coming with a kind of viewpoint on compassion and when they come like with, with that it's hard to persuade them at that moment to think you know differently about it but in essence uh i think if you know if we choose compassion uh, i think what we're doing is you know we're choosing to try to be helpful to someone or ourselves, if, if the case may be, we're choosing to help ourselves in a way that just alleviates or make things slightly easier um, than, than what, they, what they're going through, which can be immense pain, difficulty, heartache. And, but coming into contact with that pain is difficult. And a lot of people coming into contact with the pain or approaching it is the hardest thing. And so they just avoid or deny or well, uh, I know you're quite familiar with Paul Gilbert's work, and this is uh, in part related to fear of compassion yeah, and how yeah. it can cause a threat for some people. But getting back to your prior comment, I think one of the challenges, especially among academics sometimes, is there is a perception, first, that psychological sciences 
are weak. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then the other is a perception that compassion actually is weak itself. Like if you're compassionate, you allow people to step on you and take advantage of you. But I think you would agree, of course, that that's not the case whatsoever. And maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I remember um, going for some grants early on in 2016 and uh, some of the professors in our department pulling me aside, just sort of saying, you know, um, James, why are you you know, putting everything into this compassion basket. Um, I can't see it being particularly successful in terms of your academic career. Uh, sure, it's nice, but, uh, you know, what's it really going to do? <laughs> and it, it, I mean, it's these kind of uh, profound misunderstandings of what compassion is. So a lot of people already come in with some baggage or association of what compassion is, and that could come from perhaps religion background or other sort of contact points with family and so on about how they viewed compassion. So there are all those kinds of background influences that very much influence how someone uh, views and sees compassion. But at its core, compassion, the definition I work with anyway, is is getting in contact with suffering. And suffering could be anything. Uh, Like it could be an emotional suffering. And that emotional suffering can be different. It could be sadness, anger, fear. It could be a physical suffering, so someone who, you know, uh, has a broken bone or going through cancer or whatever it might be. Or it could be sort of like something related to like a resource, lack of resource or something, so poverty, uh, homelessness perhaps, uh, a victim from a natural disaster. Um, So all of these are different aspects of suffering and engaging and trying to help with those, I don't know how anyone could then call it weak. And so as soon as you break it down like that, um, a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, you, you do what you can and you try to help the, you know, them out. Um, so it's kind of like, well, when, when we slow it down and, and think of compassion at its core being about suffering and those different forms it can take, people immediately kind of drop their, uh, their kind of uh, anti-compassion stance, if you will. Yeah, well, like I said, I, I think once they understand that, sort of this uh, idea of people stepping on you goes away. As an example, if you're at a company and you have an employee who's not doing their job mm. and you give them one or two warnings and ultimately you fire them, I mean, fundamentally, uh, some people may argue, well, that wasn't very nice. But the fact of the matter is when you force somebody to take ownership or responsibility and they haven't performed, actually, uh, th- in some ways, that's actually being compassionate. You, you have told them uh, their transgressions. You've given opportunity to overcome them. They yes. have not. Yes. And they have to accept responsibility. Mm. Otherwise, you're not doing them a favor by letting them pass. Plus, you're doing a disservice to the corporate entity. So I think uh, we do have to be clear about that. But maybe one thing you can clarify for some of our listeners is the difference between empathy and compassion because some people think they're the same. And in fact, uh, I, I don't know, uh, Jamil Zaki, who uh, actually is a friend of mine at Stanford, and you're probably familiar with his work, we've had conversation and he insists that they're the same. But how do you perceive them as being different? Yeah. Um, okay. And to get to your, your other point too, yeah, compassion absolutely still has consequences involved. I completely agree with your point on, in that regard. It's not about being nice uh, at all. And sometimes uh, if, you, if you focus your compassion on being liked, 
or being nice. Uh, that's not really compassion or genuine compassion anyway. Yes, I see them as being different. I think empathy is a great informer to compassionate action. However, empathy also has some limitations. So empathy amongst cognitive neuroscientists, they kind of sometimes separate them into uh, cognitive empathy, which is your ability to kind of step into the person's perspective or their, their kind of shoes or ways of seeing things, how they could be thinking. And affective empathy is more about what they're emotionally experiencing and, and, and getting in touch with that. And Matthew Ricard actually talks a lot about how you can empathize to, to get a sense of what's going on, uh, but then you have to have a caring motivation to go with it so that you use that information to be helpful. Whereas a lot of empathy doesn't have that as part of its definition, kind of how you then use that information. So people can use their empathic skills uh, for compassionate purposes, but they can also use it for uh, very different uh, other motivations. Like there's a great Star Trek episode uh, where they, uh, there's an empath uh, on the ship, uh, Dion of Troy, uh, but she comes in contact with another empath. I can't remember his name, but he's used at the negotiation table to get the best deals for his boss. So he's using it in a way to manipulate and uh, work out the vulnerabilities uh, of his opposing team he's negotiating with in order to get the best deal for him. Um, so there are many ways we can use empathy as a skill. And a lot of the time, if people are in a caring profession, they're using it in a caring way, which is which is great. But empathy is a lot harder when you're dealing with people who you don't like very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, just a comment. I think there are a few things I'd just like to say. One is, uh, at least my understanding, uh, is empathy is not an active – it doesn't have an active component, right? Mm -hmm. You're taking on the perspective or the emotional state of another, but it doesn't involve actively attempting or uh, desiring – to alleviate the suffering, let's say. Yeah. And in fact, uh, you mentioned Mathieu Ricard, who, for those listeners who don't know him, he's a Buddhist monk who I think has done over 10,000 or maybe it's 30,000 hours of compassion meditation. And the interesting thing about him is that he's been used as a subject in studying empathy and compassion. And the researchers actually ask him to modulate his empathy and compassion. And literally, you can look on an MRI imaging study and see the increase in metabolism in these areas associated with empathy. And you can say, well, show 25% and then have him go up to 90%. And you can actually see the significant increase in metabolism. What he does say, which I think is fascinating, is though that when you're taking on that pain and suffering of another, actually it's extraordinarily painful if you're not able to alleviate that suffering. Yeah. And so it's the compassion component, which is the active component. The other thing I think Im that's important to point out is you can actually have empathic joy, right? Oh, totally. Empathy doesn't have to do with suffering at all, that's actually. That's right. Yeah, that's so, a great point. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think that's another thing to keep in mind. You're absolutely spot on. Like um, there was a great study done about empathy in everyday life where they looked at how often people were being empathic just in day-to-day -day living. Uh, so they do this through a method called experience sampling where you get uh, a number of texts on your phone during the day asking about uh, not only what you're doing but if you've had the chance to be empathic and if so, you know, who was the target but also what were you being empathic about. 
And we are more likely to be engaging with positive emotions uh, than negative uh, when we're being empathic, which is often not at all looked at in our typical self-report or fMRI or experimental studies. We're always examining empathy for the most part in context of pain or suffering. So I think that was a really uh, fantastic bit of research by DePau and colleagues. And then there was also that other really good work by Daryl Cameron, who gives people a choice between uh, either going through a set of scenarios where the, the person's asked to empathically engage with the, with the scenarios and they'd be about suffering again, or they could just describe what they see in the scenarios. And people more commonly choose to describe as opposed to engage empathically. And I think it's for that very reason you said, because you engage and you end up feeling uh, quite a, a deal of pain yourself and you can't do anything it's almost what would be the point of putting you through <laughs> yourself that pain if you were unable to take any action uh, regardless of how small um, to help try to alleviate any of the the pain that's going on yeah uh, actually daryl was also a fellow at ccare yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the other uh, interesting aspect of that i think is the reason why people choose to be compassionate. And certainly, I think we can all agree that alleviating the suffering of another is a good thing. But maybe you can comment on how that impacts your physiology, as well as uh, not only uh, your brain, but also peripheral physiology. Yeah. Uh, some of the work we've been doing has been looking at uh, the parasympathetic system, particularly um, a part of the parasympathetic system called uh, heart rate variability. So this is like a a physiological marker we can measure pretty easily in the lab, but also with wearable devices. And it gives us an indicator into whether or not the, the parasympathetic system, which is sometimes referred to as like the rest and digest system um, or the tend and befriend system within your autonomic nervous system, uh, whether or not if that's uh, active or how active it is, uh, you can measure with heart rate variability. Um, of course, the other branch being uh, your sympathetic system, which is uh, really important for energy, movement, action um, at an extreme uh, fight-flight kind of behavior. And there's been a lot of work trying to correlate your compassion, self-report compassion, uh, with uh, heart rate variability, um, uh, with uh, a meta-analysis finding that uh, there's a significant moderate relationship there. And so the idea and kind of the, the thought originally was um, those with higher heart rate variability are more able to approach stay with and attend to, to suffering. They're not more likely to, to kind of avoid or uh, run away or whatever that might be um, in terms of the sympathetic reaction to suffering. So we've been doing a little work at the moment looking at how compassion can not only increase heart rate variability, and we wrote a, a review paper on that, Dr. Doty. Um, that, I recall that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's, done, that's done pretty well. Um, but we've been doing lab studies too, measuring people's baseline heart rate variability and found um, over a two-week period we can significantly increase uh, people's uh, baseline heart rate variability, but only if they practice. Uh, so if they are practicing uh, regularly, uh, and what we found was if they're practicing uh, greater than uh, uh, six to nine times in a fortnight, you will see that increase in baseline HRV. If it's less, we didn't see the improvement in those individuals. But it, it shows how compassion can have a physiological impact. And if you've got higher HRV, you typically have uh, better health and better uh, mental health 
Uh, so, um, you know, people who have higher heart rate variability, which we've increased, show not only greater levels of self-compassion, but also they report uh, experiencing uh, less depressive symptoms, anxious symptoms, stress, but also feel an improved mood. So, which is really fabulous, of course. Yeah. So uh, I would say that the use of heart rate variability is a correlate of the physiologic effect of compassion. But of course, uh, there are other effects, right? Uh, uh, it, in some ways, is like meditation in that it can decrease your heart rate. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could just tell people the difference between heart rate variability and uh, measuring your heart rate, ah. because I, I think it's not always clear. And what I mean is, as an example, you can have two people who both have a heart rate of 60, and one is maximally stressed and one is maximally relaxed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the two are obviously connected uh, to a degree, but as you said, one can have a higher or a lower heart rate variability. So the heart rate's just the, the, the beat that, that someone has across, say, uh, a minute, say 60 beats a minute, as, you, as you're referring to. The, the ver heart rate variability refers to when those beats occur, which is often referred to as the R peak, what's the difference between those R peak intervals? So um, you don't want them to occur second by second, that variation. Um, you want them to vary, and it's imperceptible to us, like we have no knowledge of or uh, you know, somatic experience of, of, of this uh, very micro difference between the peak beats. But, um, you know, you want it to vary 900 to then up to 1.1, then back down to nine, kind of in between each of those peaks. And we look at measuring that as um, it's like a, a kind of an unorthodox health indicator. A lot of people would sort of think typically greater symmetry or greater consistency is is the, the hallmark of good health. But in this instance, the greater variability between those R peaks, the better. And that's just a marker into that your parasympathetic system is activated and it's kind of slowing down the, the heart rate. So it kind of links into the vagal tone and slowing it down. If we didn't have that there, our heart rate would be up at, you know, 160, 170 beats a, a minute. But um, I'm, I'm sure a physiologist could do a lot better job of explaining um, heart rate, heart rate variability differences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I usually say it's interbeat difference, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a good uh, way of describing uh, uh, it. <laughs> I probably have that in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think it was in the article we wrote. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But the other aspect of that, of course, is, as I was just mentioning, what also correlates with that is a decrease in the release of sympathetic hormones, yeah. uh, such as cortisol or epinephrine, norepinephrine, and also the production of inflammatory proteins, which, of course, as you know, are associated with a lot of negative disease consequences as a result. And at the end of the day, if you look at the converse of engaging your parasympathetic nervous system, of course, is that when you engage your sympathetic nervous system on a chronic basis, this, of course, decreases your telomere length, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Barbara Fredrickson, I think, has done a lot of work in that space as well. And that's exactly right. And that's a really important health indicator as well. So, you know, compassion kind of sometimes I refer to compassion as being a royal road into so many positive benefits. And of course, there are links into mindfulness practices and other breathing practices and posture and so on. But, you know, the way you engage in the practice can have just so many rippling out effects. Um, not only for your, your physical and physiological health, but uh, uh, your mental and also uh, your interpersonal relationships.
Yeah, I think uh, there was also an interesting book called The Telomere Effect by Elizabeth Blackburn and Alyssa Eppel regarding the same issue. But as you pointed out, I mean, Barbara Fredrickson has done an immense amount of work in, in this area as well. So in addition to the effects I mentioned, maybe you can give us some insights into why compassion evolved as a practice within the human species in terms of our surviving? <laughs> you ask that easy I, I, question. I, I, <laughs> what are you going to say, sir? I only ask questions I have the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, I wonder if I can uh, link this into my other research. So, I mean, uh, I started uh, my work in, in parenting. Uh, so I worked with a, a wonderful uh, professor, Matt Sanders, here at the University of Queensland, who developed a parenting program uh, to help parents in their role in, in, in raising kids. And many parents can, can struggle with it. I mean, it's not an easy job at the best of times. You're sleep deprived. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to sometimes negotiate and make clear uh, instructions and and so on. So it can be it can be very difficult. But compassion kind of, there are many different kind of thoughts on, on how it emerged. But one kind of theory, which is kind of shared amongst a lot of scholars, is that it comes out of that uh, almost uh, a basic parental caregiving strategy. And that is, uh, you know, for mammals uh, and birds and, and some fish as well, we spend a lot of our, in terms of our parental investment strategy, a lot of time responding uh, to uh, the distress calls of our of our young, in order to ensure that they are cared for, um, do receive adequate you know sustenance and and shelter and love, and that isn't because we're needy as a species. Our child isn't just being selfish; they need it in order to grow and flourish as a human. And so humans do that for like you know 15, 20 years. I think the closest mammal does it for about two years. I think they're like a cheetahs and koalas and so on. Uh, they'll spend a similar amount of time. Orangutans, I think, spend quite a long time as well. I think elephants do too, actually. Yeah, that you'd be spot on. Um, and so there's a long parental investment process. And, of course, that differs to reptilian kind of parental investment strategies where they'll have a, quite a big litter often as a comparison sea turtles are used and they'll have up to 80 120 eggs at a time they'll uh, lay them but then they'll have no contact with those kids ever again uh so they hatch and then that's that's over they've got everything they need well i think that's the interesting aspect because we're one of the few species that uh, our offspring don't uh, uh run off into the jungle or the forest or swim away i mean if <laughs> we don't take care of sometimes <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> We, we pretend that's the case and ignore them. But uh, so uh, as a result, uh, we have to be present or they won't survive. And obviously, if we if they don't survive, then our species ends. Yeah. So I think that's really an important point. But the other aspect is, one, humans are uniquely abled, if you will, to interpret the emotional states of others based on uh, voice intonation, based on facial expression, based on body habitus, even smell. And we would not care unless somehow we were rewarded for expending all these time and resources, right? And I think the thing is that when you care, you get benefit, right? Because the reward centers in your brain actually 
light up, very similar to what we get from food or sex or, uh, unfortunately, gambling or other types of addictive uh, behaviors. No, you're absolutely right. Um, sometimes it's it's referred to also as like just the warm glow, which I think a lot of people would be familiar with. And that's when you've helped someone out. And then after the fact, you kind of feel slightly, you know, better or you get this kind of warm, good kind of feeling that kind of emerges from being helpful. Often in depression, uh, if uh, I'm helping someone with depression uh, in the clinic, one of the first things we'll e- even look at doing is trying to get the person out of their own head and try to get them thinking about someone else and, and doing something helpful for them. Because again, it gets them active, gets them doing something, but it also gives them a sense of helping or contributing and, and being of helpful meaning to someone. And, and that is uh, a very important feeling for us to have. I think a lot when we transition into that part of life where we move out of a lot of work, we don't have kids that we're looking after, we can lose that sense of purpose um, and we're not perhaps a being of help or service to others. And and that has a lot of uh, negative consequences. Yeah, I think for the elderly, you know, especially in modern society, they're sort of discarded and not being active, not being engaged, not being helpful, I think has a very deleterious effect. The other aspect is, which we were talking about, you were mentioning depression. It's interesting because it's almost paradoxical, right? You have people who are depressed, but it becomes a selfish act in a way, right? Because they're alone. Oh, very alone. Yep. And as a result, they ruminate on their own situation and ignore oftentimes what's going on around them. Mm. But if you engage them in this outward uh, behavior, it has a very positive effect, and which, of course, is uh, uh, the opposite of being selfish. Uh, you're engaging, you're interacting with others. And it's amazing, though, how when you do that, one, I think it sort of makes you also recognize that others are suffering and it's yeah. not just about you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, suffering or depression uh, oftentimes uh, is just you, about, uh, all, all the, the problems that you have. And in some ways, this relates, of course, to self-compassion. And maybe you can talk about how self-compassion relates to compassion itself. Yeah, sure. Uh, but you're spot on. Like depression is just such a disconnector to, you know, everything. And uh, it's just an awful part of, of that particular, you know, quote-unquote disorder that we, we, we refer to it as or illness. And um, it's hard to see it when you're in it. You know, it's very hard to, to see it when you're in it. So, you know, when you are in those states, uh, getting help from others, and typically one of the things that happens, it gets turned off your ability to look to help, look for help and go towards others because depression is a disconnector. You move away, you isolate. Um, as you said, the rumination kicks off. It's just terrible. And the way society is kind of geared up now as well, it's kind of enables you to stay disconnected quite easily. You know, you can go around your whole day without seeing someone. But uh, when it comes to moving outside of depression and into how you might be helpful with compassion or self-compassion, you know, in the kind of definition that a lot of people use uh, for compassion, kind of self and other is just included within. But there's been a lot of work focused recently, well, not recently, probably 20 years on how self-compassion can be helpful. Uh, And self-compassion is essentially just taking how you would respond to someone else's distress and doing the same uh, to yourself. But a lot of people find that really difficult. (laughs) 
So, uh, you know, if they were to see someone else have a, a failure, a disappointment or a setback, they're usually pretty good at, you know, being encouraging, understanding towards that person. But if they themselves have a setback or failure or something like that, it's pretty easy for us to automatically fall into a, a critical way of thinking and relating. In fact, we did a, a study which you were involved in, of course, uh, where we asked people in the scanner, um, we put them through a series of different uh, setbacks or failures and uh, asked them to either uh, respond to these self-critically or in a self-compassionate way. And what my PhD student at the time found, he's now since graduated, Dr. Jeffrey Kim, what he found was it was remarkable. No one ever asked him, oh, how do I be critical? But a lot of people would ask him, can you give me an example of what I would do to be self-compassionate? <laughs> it's just like, oh, my Lord, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we find the criticism very easy at times, particularly towards ourselves. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think what it does also is it, it clouds you from, uh, I always say, that seeing the true nature of reality, right, uh, which is that everyone is suffering. Mm. And, uh, you know, when you're able to understand that, in fact, it, I, th I think it's uh, evolutionary baggage, if you will, because, you know, things that put you at risk stick to you, right? Yeah. And negative criticism often is interpreted as a threat, and it sticks to you. And this is why, you know, people are constantly telling themselves they're not good enough, they're not smart enough, they're not worthy, uh, they're an imposter. And as a result, when you have that dialogue going on in your head, it's it's very challenging to look outward and not be hypercritical of of everyone. Uh, and certainly, I, I can admit that I have that uh, challenge myself. Yeah, no, I think it is it is something which is, as you mentioned, kind of a, a shared experience which we can all kind of resonate and connect with. Hence why no one asks, how, how could I be critical? It is something that we kind of pick up quite easily. And in fact, you know, people will pay others quite a lot of money to be yelled at uh, to get fit, you know. <laughs> you see those boot camps and stuff and I'm just like, my goodness. And so in some ways people do find it um, motivating if kept to a certain setting, like, you know, okay, just in this setting, like I know I'm a good person and so on, um, just in this instance, okay, I'll let it, I'll let it run because it's short term, it, you know, I can see the end points and start points. The problem is, is when those boundaries no longer uh, exist and it just blurs into everything and, you know, I've lost track of how many adults I've seen in therapy who talk about how in their uh, schooling years, you know, they had a lot of teachers tell them, you know, you pull your socks up, otherwise you're going to have a, a terrible future. Um, and it kind of, they can pinpoint moments that are quite poignant, emotionally poignant in that time where their criticism really kicked off in a big way um, because of how um, others were speaking to them and, and criticizing them. Well, I think th this is another excellent point is how so many people are afraid of being judged or negative yes. comments being yes. made about them and how sticky those are. I had a woman who was a nurse and I was speaking at a, a nursing conference and talking about some of these issues. And here's a woman who has a PhD. She's uh, a high level administrator at a hospital. I mean, obviously quite accomplished. And she asked a question, but as part of the question, she, uh, before <laughs> asking the question, she broke into tears. And she uh, made a statement, which was, my whole life, I thought I was nothing, because this is what my father would tell me. 
So, you know, here's a woman who's probably 60 and her whole life has been around trying to prove to her father she was worthy. And imagine the difference if he had said, you know, you are incredible. You're so intelligent. You can accomplish anything and avoided all this negative baggage that's been the driver of her behavior. And certainly when that is the driver of your behavior, you can never be good enough, right? Oh yeah, I oh, I mean, thanks for sharing that really emotionally powerful. It's hard not to get choked up. I can see it's certainly impacted you. My God, when you hear those things, you just kind of there's part of me that kind of gets a bit angry. <laughs> you know, um, being a parenting and researcher, you know, the impact our words can have uh, on our children is powerful. In fact, a lot of people, you know, their kids, their understandings of compassion and equally their fears of compassion kind of originate at home. So if you've got memories of warmth in childhood, and so some terrific work by uh, Marcelo Matos in Portugal, for example, you know, if, if you've got good memories of warmth, and so your parents were warm towards you, you've got some, feel, you know, memories of friendliness and fun, that's often a really strong buffer to those other moments where the parent kind of lost their cool and got, got, maybe got angry towards you because those, those moments happen. But if you don't have those memories of warmth, from your parents, you are much more likely uh, to fear being self-compassionate as an adult and receiving compassion from other people. And if you fear receiving compassion from other people, uh, you're often alone with your difficulty and you're disconnected, like we were talking about earlier with the depression, because you fear the the kind of helpfulness and care from, from other, other people. And that could be because as a child, when you were seeking care, dad yelled at you, you know, Leave me alone. I'm doing this or whatever it might be. Yeah, or, or wasn't there in any way emotionally. Oh, yeah, exactly. No, I think that's th- those are uh, really important points that people forget about oftentimes. And this issue of bonding or creating this affiliative bonds or connections to others is, is I think, very, very important. Mm. This is really actually quite profound because children who grow up in these impoverished emotional environments, of course, carry a lot of baggage, which is associated with a lot of chronic disease states and also insecurities, which then oftentimes lead to different addiction issues or the inability to create or maintain normally accepted social interaction. That's right. I mean, there's a huge body of work that have looked at um, uh, adverse childhood experiences, you know, which can be the neglect that you were mentioning uh, earlier, you know, just not around, uh, not getting that kind of uh, parental connection and support and warmth. Um, But equally, it can be um, physically and emotionally uh, abusive as well. And these things open up tremendous wounds that that uh, are never properly healed, and they can result in people having a whole host of different physical and, and mental health difficulties. And so there's been a huge body of work over the last 10, 15 years trying to really focus in on how we help in trauma-informed ways, uh, trauma-informed sensitive ways, uh, those who have come from uh, these uh, terrible uh, situations, which no one would would suggest uh, um, they asked for or wanted and certainly didn't deserve. Just to make a comment for our audience, uh, I did a podcast with Gabor Mate, who mm. uh, I'm sure you know, James, oh, wow. and yeah. uh, we discussed many of these issues as well, so you may want to listen to that. But getting back to this issue, I think what happens is that people engage in behaviors 
which they think are related to the event at hand, but are actually driven by these past narratives of trauma. And many people forget that in some ways growing up in these types of environments, which is one of chaos, uncertainty, then don't create the necessary tools to deal with the future. And it affects all of their behaviors. And so I think it's important that also people, again, look through a compassionate lens when they interact with others to appreciate that oftentimes what's going on has nothing to do with the present moment. And it could be something recent or it could be something from their past. That's absolutely right. Um, And it becomes very hard if this has been your previous experiences to begin to open up and trust others. You know, if my dad or my mum could do this to me, why should I open up and be vulnerable and and trust another? And the obvious dilemma there is that's, of course, what they're yearning for, right, Uh, because they've not had it either. So then the self-blame can kick in. You know, what's wrong with me? Why, Why am I, you know, and it's just terrible. Well, and of course, then that informs their other behavior because, you know, if, if they had this negative interaction, sometimes they confuse that actually with love, Yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then they create these codependent relationships, uh, sadly. Uh, which is why in, in, in some instances, um, you know, when I transitioned into focusing more on compassion, I saw so many connections between parenting and compassion, you know, ultimately, you know, as we talked about the, the origins of compassion, the, the two are so incredibly and closely linked. Um, and then trying to bring compassion into the parenting sphere has been uh, part of my, my kind of research focus as well, trying to see if we can not only uh, improve uh, sort of parents' levels of self-compassion, how that might then shift how their their parenting style with their kids, but also the flow-on effects and whether or not we start to see kids also being more pro-social. And we've got some work coming out uh, that, that's showing that uh, we can increase tra- uh, children's pro-sociality uh, by embedding a, a compassion module in, in parenting programs. So I think, you know, often it's not about reducing a negative. You know, often, um, c- you know, compassion program, of course, a uh, compassion approach, of course, is about um, a lot of the time alleviating suffering and trying to reduce the negative. Uh, but at the same time, it can also be... Uh, incredibly powerful to watch someone being compassionate because we're big copiers and and children copy it as well. So we then copy what we see and we start to see that pro-social behavior shown outwards. It becomes a a contagion in that way. No, you're absolutely right. I, I, I think it should also be emphasized, and in some ways we've been doing that, is that while a significant part of our, if you will, compassion or connection is genetically driven, None of us have, in all likelihood, maximized our genetic potential for (laughs) compassion. And we can actually learn to be more thoughtful and more compassionate, which I'm sure you've experienced. We have this compassion cultivation training program or our new program called Cultivating the Heart, which is an eight-week-long program. But these types of programs actually give people tools and insights that allow them to be more compassionate. And I can't tell you the number of spouses or children of of these individuals who've said, wow, after taking this course, you know, uh, my father, my mother, it's a completely different type of interaction. And so you don't have to accept that somehow you can't change. Uh, All of us can change. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I also experienced personally, you know, some 
pretty immediate um, and also more gradual uh, changes from doing the programs myself just as a as a, a participant I, I completed uh, the CCT program whilst over there at Stanford and it was just uh, oh, it was it was awesome um, but just little things I think the thing that kind of got me going was I'm pretty grumpy in the morning um, I am not a morning person. yes James I, <laughs> I, I, I have noticed that James in fact you're sort of a a twit uh, in the mornings, but <laughs> terrible, aren't I? I used to row as an adolescent, and um, I must have made my parents' life hell during that, <laughs> that six years because the early mornings coupled with a bad attitude wouldn't have been pleasant uh, for dad dropping me off. But um, I was like, okay, if you know, I'm about to become a dad, I don't want the first interaction my kiddo has with me being leave me alone, which is typically how I would feel waking up. It's like, i got to do something about this. And that really became one of the, my major aims in, in um, the, uh, the CCT Compassion Cultivation Training Program that Huria was actually leading us through as the facilitator. She was just amazing. Uh, you know, how could I start to, in my mornings, be able to set myself in such a way uh, that I could be at my compassionate best? And... Um, and, re, re, you know, relate in a way that I would want to relate with my child. And Cassie, you could ask my wife, uh, yeah, she she has, you know, commented many times on how that has just changed the morning. You know, it's not to say that I am um, a, a desiring early mornings. Absolutely not. If I can sleep in, I will take that, that opportunity. <laughs> when I wake up, <laughs> smile, you know, it's wonderful to see you. And a hug is kind of the things that I would like to be the first contact points of my day. So, you know, I'll just wake up and just think for one or two minutes, not very long, but just eyes closed, one or two minutes, you know, okay, how would I like my this this first contact point to be um, with my son or, or daughter or, or my wife, you know? And then I imagine that in my mind and how it would sound and how it would look, and then away we go. I think that's an excellent point because you, in some ways, the nature of modern society is one that uh, sort of pulls us away from that because of all the various uh, stresses in modern life. And if the first thing you engage with is that stress or that comes to mind, it makes it very hard to have pro-social interaction. That's right. Like I would check email box or something like that, text messages, and that would just set us off, right? But I've got a question. Can I put a question to you? Well, don't ask me if I can relate because, uh, unfortunately, as you were saying that about your your cell phone or whatever, I'm going, oh, shit, I, a lot of times I've been doing that and just going <laughs> off and sitting by myself looking at my phone or stuff because I don't want to be hassled with <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of these things. So, so uh, thank you for bringing that to my attention, and I'm sure my wife will appreciate uh, this conversation. <laughs> Sorry, Marsha. Um, but no, I mean, one of the thoughts I've had recently is, you know, I went into that compassion training really focused on family, particularly how I want to relate to the people closest to me. And, and we are typically uh, compassionate more to, to those close to us because, you know, they're the people we see. And there's also, of course, the genes aspect and so on. But I was curious, and I'd like your thoughts on this, is if you go through like a short-term compassion program, say like, you know, just even an audio self-directed a month even, or just even a short three or four-week, even eight-week, maybe a bit longer program, do you think 
that would magnify the differences between in and out groups even more as you become more compassionate to people closer to you. So you're more compassionate to your family and friends and therefore the divide of your pro-social behaviour is kind of even more in the in-group camp as opposed to out-group camp. So is there any risk of polarising the groups even more on this pro-social behaviour spectrum through these short-term programs? Well, I think if you put in your mind, one, that being compassionate really is only important to you because of your family, I think that could create that reality. I think the other aspect is that if you also sort of say, this is the most important thing to me and everything else is secondary, I think that could happen. I think that probably the more appropriate behavior is this idea that uh, you wish all living beings not to suffer and uh, and then put that in also the statement about you want to be kind and compassionate to not only to your family, but to everyone. And I think emphasizing that at every step of the way is important. I do believe that having a compassion practice or, you know, some people use different mindfulness types of practices is very helpful. Oftentimes people ask me, you know, what is my practice? And what I tell people is that for me, at least what I do when I wake up in the morning, and I won't say a hundred percent because uh, nothing's a hundred percent, but uh, at least for me, but uh, is I sit by the side of the bed and then I'll begin a breathing exercise, which we didn't talk about, but as you know, will shift you. Yeah from engagement of your sympathetic into your parasympathetic system. And then I close my eyes and I think of the awe of being in this world and the joy. And then I shift into this uh, alphabet of the heart mm. and go through each letter with you know one sentence. As an example, the first of these 10 letters is C. And I think about compassion for self and others. And then I go through each letter. When I do that, that sets the tone for my day. And as you know, and uh, I don't think we have time to tell the story, but there was this uh, a woman who created a set of compassion beads. And I keep a set of those in my pocket throughout the day. And if I'm stressed or anxious, I'll just put my hand in my pocket and feel those. And it sort of reminds me to be kind and compassionate and thoughtful and to have gratitude. And so I think whether it's a practice like that or something similar that sort of allows you to have this place where you can remember uh, the importance of compassion in your everyday life, I think that constant type of reinforcement is very helpful. Oh, could not agree more. I think having little, you know, almost external cues or something that can help assist you to reset, reconnect or remember, as you said, uh, to come back to that intention is key. I mean, I lose my cool all the time. I get an email through like, oh God, what, you know, what's this about? What am I, what did I, what had I agreed to? What's going on? And the stress can just immediately just spike. Um, and then you're lost and you're down a narrow kind of, you know, stressed out path. And so having ways to bring you back that work for you, uh, I think is, is really key. I had one guy who I mentioned in the book, he would do his practice in the morning and then he would walk downstairs. His uh, daughter moved back in with him with, with, uh, uh, her, her own daughter 
Uh, so, you know, a three-generation family. And he'd walk down the stairs and he said she was his granddaughter was just so loud um, that it ruined his practice for the day. And it was just like that, you know, it's the very kind of opposite to kind of what we were wanting the practice to help with, right? But um, right. he's like, now I can't do it again until tomorrow. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you know. Sometimes people's practices take them away, right? He had a beautiful, tranquil spot that he'd made in the house where he could do it, got into his kind of uh, meditative, relaxed state, but then that was lost when he wasn't there. And it's like, well, that's not why we're doing it. Um, Well, I think that's a good point. I I, I think that while it's wonderful to have the space, the whole point of this is to uh, have equanimity. Yeah. Even this of temperament, not to allow external events change your perspective on everything yeah uh, exactly and we were able to work through that together he was he was remarkable remarkable guy who i mentioned in the book but uh the other interesting thing i I find about that hence why i asked that question about you know does a compassion program lead to a greater divide between your in and out groups is uh, work I'm doing at the moment is kind of interested in this uh, concept of moral expansiveness, which kind of ties into your moral circle, which is a bit like um, Peter Singer kind of popularized that, you know, where's your moral boundary? How far out does it go? How far um, does your moral concern uh, go outwards and where is it? where does it stop for certain people? And in this scale, there's a range of different entities that are listed from you know, family, uh, but also uh, perhaps uh, sick children um, in different parts of the world. Villains even uh, are listed there, but also revered types. So you're sort of Mother Teresa type uh, individuals. And uh, but prejudice groups, um, people from different uh, uh, political spectrums. Um, and it asks, you know, how worthy are all of these different entities? Uh, how worthy are they of your concern? You can put them in the middle, um, which would be very worthy or on the outer circle or outside the circle. And we've been doing work seeing how compassion, empathy, and mindfulness predict people's moral circles. Uh, uh, No surprises, compassion's found to be uh, the most powerful predictor for that. But we just completed an intervention study of a two-hour compassion training intervention and found post-intervention, so two weeks after the training, uh, that people who received compassion training had greater concern for their family revered groups but also villains uh, compared to the control group which was a surprise Uh, but at follow-up three months follow-up everyone's moral concern to all the different targets had increased so I, I was you know we're doing more work trying to look at how we can increase people's concern for others and I was really you know excited by some of this uh, work coming out. You're probably familiar with the study that was done years ago in terms of infliction of pain <clears throat> or people's situation, and they had a comparison between a child uh, who had been given blood tainted with HIV and got HIV versus an IV drug abuser. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you can imagine everyone, of course, is very sympathetic to the child and much less sympathetic uh, to the IV drug abuser. But with these types of practices, it elevates your sympathy for all parties. And, you know, the reality is, as I'm sure you appreciate, when people become drug addicts or uh, alcoholics, in some ways they're trying to soothe deep pain that they have. And so when we're, uh, we create this narrative that somehow they deserve what they got, 
but uh, nobody deserves that. And so we should be much more gentle. And of course, the statement, but for the grace of God, go I, right? Yeah, I think yeah, is <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, 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 very important because, uh, you know, when you're hypercritical and you're judgmental, then something comes back to you. You go, oh, uh, <laughs> I get it now, right? Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, we, we, I'm sure you and I could talk forever, which we typically do. Uh, <laughs> maybe you can give us some parting wisdom, words, insights, oh or something from your book, uh, which will uh, we can carry with us to make us better people. Oh, God. Damn. Why do you ask hard questions? Uh, I think basically one of the tricky parts is um, I found initially after trying to bring more compassion into my life is, you know, there are so many things that I think I'm doing okay, but there's also all of these other things that I'm not doing particularly well. And so you kind of sometimes feel like a bit of a hypocrite at times. Like, you know, you're kind of saying this is really important stuff, but I also could do a lot better. And I hope people don't find out that oh, I still do X, Y, and Z. So you kind of have these kind of um, contradictions, if you will. And I just think it's impossible to be, as you mentioned, 100% compassionate. And that's not the the ultimate aim either. I mean, that's just setting up a, a situation of uh, failure. But the idea is just what you can do as a small step, just trying to keep it small, small steps to begin with. And it's amazing how quickly um, those small steps can can add up um, and become something quite significant uh, very quickly. So just focusing on something small that you think you can do today for someone else would be what I would say try to do. And sure, there'll be times you'll feel like, oh, yes, but um, tell that yes, but to bugger off. <laughs> Keep going with your, your, your small steps. And to close, I think this, uh, you mentioned this warm glow effect. You know, nothing is, uh, I don't think, more powerful than when you are uh, or have helped another person and you're even reminded of it, it makes you feel so good. And I think those types of feelings, when you think about those, can add more motivation to your future actions. Oh, yeah. And then you start to see it everywhere. You're right. And then you start to see other people doing it and you start to recognize, actually, it is happening a lot more often than what I realize. I just don't see it. I just don't allow myself to see it. Well, James, uh, have a great day. It's wonderful to see you. I'm sure uh, hopefully our paths are going to cross. I think our mutual friend Stan Steindl is going to be out here in California. Hopefully we'll see you at some point uh, back this way, or maybe I can come down to uh, Australia again. <laughs> no, I'd love that. Uh, 2023, let's try to make something happen. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, my friend, take care. Great chatting with you. And uh, remember, everyone, check out James's book, Choose Compassion, Why It Matters, and what's the other part of it? Uh, and how it works. Got it. Why it matters and how it works. <laughs> Choose <you>. Compassion. <laughs> and it is actually, I have to say, it's a wonderfully written book, and I've enjoyed reading it. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>